with Chris and Holly Sanchello. They're back 203 days abroad. As you might recall from our first interview together, they uh, sold their house, most of their possessions, except what could fit into five backpacks. And they, along with their three kids, uh, hit the road here domestically here in the United States for four months. Yes. And then uh, went to uh, Asia, Russia, Mongolia, and China. Welcome home, at least for a short period of time, guys. Thanks, Michael. Thank Good to be here. Good to see you guys. We are ready for a little bit of relaxation after Asia. I won't. I won't lie. <laughs> it's good to be back in the familiar. I think so. I. I don't know. I liked it. <laughs> the land of our trip, we were in uh, Central Asia and Uzbekistan and, and Kyrgyzstan and whatnot. And then even just coming into Russia from there felt more comfortable. Like it was interesting. Like there's so many subtleties of culture that are just hard to encapsulate. We sat down in a restaurant and. I know the language was a little more familiar, but still foreign, and, and it, it's interesting. And uh, so it's very relaxing to be a place where your brain's not working to try to decipher foreign languages all the time. Yeah. So it is It is a nice break. And it's Thanksgiving with family, and so it's wonderful. So what are you guys thankful for? Oh, my gosh, so much. Okay. The fact that we <laughs> left with three kids and came back with the same three kids, That's I think good. that that was a big victory. Mm. I'm thankful for... I'm thankful for a lot of things in this country. Actually, I keep saying I'm thankful for all the freedoms that we have here. Um, wow, I'm, I'm amazed by the, the wealth that we have here, honestly. Um, so I'm extremely thankful for that. The, the perspective that I got from traveling in Asia is, uh, has hit me full force upon coming home. Yes. Yeah, very much so. I like she. I think she alluded to the freedoms and whatnot, and I think that can't be underplayed. It, it is very nice being in a place where you feel very comfortable and uh and feeling how you want to feel and, and expressing your legitimate gripes with your uh country and and government when appropriate and and not worried about any kind of reprisal and there were definitely some countries and situations we were in where where we felt like the people we were talking to were not necessarily being completely forthright perhaps because um they were fearful of what what might happen if they were and that that's that gets fatiguing and uncomfortable I really didn't know how much freedom of speech and um, just be going and coming without feeling like I'm constantly being observed by government. And maybe I am, but at least it's not. <laughs> I, I really took that kind of thing for granted that we can go and do as we please, assuming that we, we aren't inhibiting other people's freedoms. Within reasonable you know? bounds, it's true. Um, and that just, it's not the case in, in China in particular. Oh my goodness. China's the one that jumps out. Yeah. Everywhere else we felt reasonably comfortable. Um, but, um, yeah, it was good, too. There were a lot of neat things about China, and there were, we met some great people there and whatnot, but overall the the situation created by the government made us uncomfortable, and uh, that was unfortunate. So that's a big one. That's one that's not occurred mm-hmm. on my Thanksgiving grateful list before. That was a big lesson. That's good. Well, before we take you guys abroad, uh, as I said, you guys spent four months traveling here in the States. Three kids, five backpacks, and a trunk. And a that car. Trunk. And, 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 our, and our mid-sized sedan. That was our, our our sixth backpack. Was our mid-sized sedan. Yeah, we drove cross country. We did some national parks. We did some hiking. We did a couple museums and you know capital buildings and whatnot. And then visited lots of friends and family. Mm-hmm. That was a that was kind of a, a bucket list kind of thing. Just yeah, I mean, all of those people that you say you know I'll come visit you in the Midwest someday. Like we did. We actually did. We we drove and visited them. Um, in places that we don't normally aren't on the, our our normal path, and that was that was pretty special. 
You also had an interesting experience of one of your hiking trips, which I'll let you guys to share. Yeah. And it's related to resilience. <laughs> Everything's related to resilience. We're all about resilience. So all, all across the United States, you know, it really felt like, when is this trip really going to get? But in retrospect, we did, we did challenge ourselves. Um, well, for me, what, what <laughs> I just kept seeking out, like, let's just do something really hard for our bodies. Let's go on crazy hikes. Let's or, go on a 12-point hike in, a, in the desert with inadequate water. Yeah, let's camp somewhere. Really challenging. Um, and, and that helped me feel like we were kind of gearing ourselves up for, for those kind of um, practices in resilience with us, with ourselves, and with our kids. Well, we've talked about it before. Like, so much of the... Uh, of being able to hike long distances and, and go without water and uncomfortable sleeping situations. You know, some of it's physical, but most of it's mental and, and emotional and whatnot. And so developing that, um, that ability to withstand discomfort. We, we created a new family motto. I, I think we shared with you before our, our family credo, which we say before meals and, and have been for years. Well, we developed a new one for our trip. And, um, and uh, one of the lines is, comfort is not the goal. Oh, man, that one comes back to me every now and then. I just have to, okay. Remember. Remember. Comfort. It's <laughs> not the goal. Because <laughs> if comfort was a goal, we'd be on a beach somewhere. You know, that's like, right. We'd, we'd be on a beach somewhere, and we're not, that's not our goal. We did not travel. We did not uh, walk across the border from uh, China into Kyrgyzstan uh, with the goal of being comfortable. That that's right. Goal. So you picked out Mount Temple in Banff because it was one of the tallest mountains that you can climb without I found this a technical really, experience. I found this really neat website, uh, and the title was uh, Mountains Mortals Can Climb, and it was the highest, like, 10 peaks that don't require technical experience or equipment. So there's no rock climbing, there's no roped-in, you know, thing. It's just it's just a trail, and it's pretty high, and it's not, it wasn't one of the highest uh, on that list, but it was, shoot, now I don't remember. I don't remember either. It's like 11, 8 or something like that. Uh, like, okay, I was not, gonna guess 12. So. We told the boys, this is gonna be hard, guys. It's gonna be hard. We're, we're gonna wake up early in the morning. You know, we prepared them as best we could. We, you know, because part of resilience is, is learning and being educated about what's, what's coming ahead. Um, so we prepared them as best we could, um, but we really did not take into account <laughs> the spring snow melt factor. So we had hiked on snow just a couple weeks ago successfully in Colorado. Um, a couple weeks before that no problem like snowpack was great it was deep but we just glided along the top of it had a great time I was even wearing shorts that day um, so we kind of figured it was gonna be the same we'll add a couple of weeks of, of sun onto that and now you've got just like mush <laughs> and yeah, so I could make it once we got past like the highly trafficked area close to the trailhead um, I could make it about three to four steps and then I'd sink waist deep and have to crawl out with my hands and, and these and we don't have proper equipment. Like we don't we're not wearing waterproof pants and like we don't have gaiters on and we don't have, you know, snowshoes or anything. Like I had my leg warmers. <laughs> like I'm I'm really into these old eighties like dance leg warmers and stuff. Yeah, That's about as technical really as I got on that hike. It was a lot better <laughs> than a, a couple of years earlier in, in Ireland when we were putting socks on the kids' hands. Like we had gloves. Uh, but they yeah. were not waterproof, and we had hats. And it's important to, to acknowledge the age of your kids who are going through this. So we were 6, 8, 10 at that point. Yeah. Two of them have had birthdays since then, but they were 6, 8, and 10 years old, which ironically means a 6-year-old is mostly walking on the... He barely ever Oh, yeah, he in. was good to go. Uh, that was, that was frustrating. It was, it was a nice balancing factor. It's like normally walking... That's true. Walking I forgot about that. Early in the day, but 
the whole uh, continuing on, and I, it's worth pointing out, it's or fun to point out anyway, that there were two groups of Europeans that passed us on the way up and then both gave up before we did and we passed them as they headed back down. Because like, we were going to summit this mountain. Like, we this were, was our goal. It was no our quest. Bus, we were and yeah, we were slowed down by this snow stuff, but we were going to get there. And we kept looking at the dry part of the mountain, not too far in the distance. Like, not I think, too far guys, if we such just a funny keep going, term, we'll, we'll we get were there. sure over the next rise it was going to be dry because she's right. The summit, you could see the summit was dry. Uh, it had gotten <clears> enough sun, it was dry, and we were going to get there. And we didn't. We, we did. did get to the dry area. We got to the dry area. We took off most of our clothes and dried them on rocks while we ate lunch. And um, and then continued a little farther. And then we turned back at our oh, agreed agreed It was such time. time and everybody got home safe. But you beat the Europeans. That's we beat the Europeans. <laughs> I was like a snow snake. I developed this like wriggle method to try and stay onto the surface of the snow. Yeah, I figure that for roughly one mile, Holly and I were crawling on our hands and knees. And, um, which is, I think it was like 12 Head down, total. just like, come on, we're gonna make it. It's gonna be amazing. It was a good challenge. <laughs> on the way back down, the snow was more melted, another six hours of sun, and, um... Oh, man. I, just for fun, I put my boots into the snowmelt stream on the way and back sat down. there on the way back down. There's a beautiful photo of her sitting there, like, her feet submerged. Because why not? They were already soaked. It was, that's exactly my state. But back <laughs> to the resilience, back to the idea of resilience, like, it was a challenge for the kids, and I... I I thought it was particularly poignant because we did reach a point, as we talked about before, where I, I turned to our youngest who was discomfort, uh, uncomfortable and uh, he wasn't complaining very loudly. We don't have a lot of complaining in our household, I'm happy to say. Um, but, uh, but he was looking for alternatives and at this point, there are no alternatives. We're going down. I'm crawling my hands and knees through the snowpack and um, I can't carry you even if I want to. And, uh, and you're gonna walk down off this mountain or, 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 you know, or what? And, um, and I think that helped and I think putting uh, ourselves in those situations where, you know, you're gonna do, you're gonna do this or you're gonna, no, there's no good, there's no good plan B here. Um, and uh, I should across, also say- Walking across the border to Kyrgyzstan probably was another example of, we just need to keep going until we get story? there. <laughs> Same so we left uh, China. We were in Xinjiang, China. We went through Turpin. We kind of followed the Silk Road a little bit by train, not camel. And much faster by train. And we were in Turpan and we were in Kashgar, which is, you know, you know, a famous city and, and fascinating in its own right. And, and that last segment in China was interesting because it stopped being really like Chinese. This was, uh, we were in a Muslim country and the Uyghurs were speaking a completely different language. Their, their dialect they write with the Arabic uh, alphabet. So like you're looking at signs that look like Chinese and Arabic, but then you realize that the Arabic is actually a Chinese dialect that the Uyghurs use. It's all fascinating. And, um, and different food and different cultures and mosques on, a, on the corner instead of, you know, instead of Buddhist temples and whatnot. And the, um, and still no Americans because there's just no Americans in Central Asia. And, um, and but the, most of the tourists at that point were Han Chinese. And who were coming to go see this place, which is super foreign from their perspective. And uh, we left Xinjiang. Uh, we got a taxi early in the morning because it takes a long time. But I'm looking at my map. It doesn't look that far. But he's like, no, it takes a long time. And you're going to want to get to the border soon because it takes a long time to pass. And we're like, well, you, you know what you're talking about. We'll take your word for it. And they charged what we considered an absurd quantity of money that in retrospect was totally worth it because we had uh, seven stops and 14 passport surrenders hmm. during the course of the next six hours of our lives. Yeah. And um, 
it was it was weird and we drove past camps and I'm not I'm not a journalist and I'm not an anything and I don't uh, we weren't there for political reasons or, or journalistic reasons we were just observing what we were seeing and there are these weird military looking camps in the distance with um, razor wire around them and um, and uh, children's play facilities with barbed wire around them and just just creepy and weird and um, and like I said, just stopped repeatedly and presenting passports and surrendering them. For a while, our driver was given custody of our passport. I'm like, okay, you're done with the giving. He's like, no, I give it to the, your driver and your driver, here's your receipt for the fact that your driver's holding your passport. And um, that was weird. And then made more weird by the fact that 10 minutes later, we drove away from that station and he handed us our passport back um, because, and then we showed it to someone else. And then we went through two more stops like that. And then he wrapped it, he said, give it back now. And then wrapped it up and showed it to someone else. Like they don't even know their own system, but the driver does, the taxi driver knows the system. And then he finally- And we certainly didn't understand it. And our uh, taxi driver didn't speak a lick of, no. of English, you know, not his fault at all, but boy, it sure made our communication hard. It was- It was a little awkward. Yeah. Uh, he kicked us out of the car at one point because he needed to buy gas. And it's razor wire and secure to go buy gas. And, uh, and there was all this gesturing, like, you, I'll go pick you up over there, and it's all nonverbal, like, and finally it's like he's kicking us out of the car. All right, let's get out of the car and walk somewhere. And, but there's high security <laughs> to buy gas because they're worried about improvised bombs and whatnot. Yeah. So gas is a high security thing. And it was all very strange and awkward and uncomfortable. And then you get to the border, and he's like, bye. And we're like, bye. <laughs> and the last uh, border guards say, bye. And then you walk. And you go through no man's land and you take a little selfie next to the, the, the like sign that says China starts here. And then you walk a hundred yards and you get to the sign that says Kyrgyzstan starts here and you take a selfie there. And um, I had five bars of signal, by the way, walking through no man's land. That's the funniest part. So I'm wow. like posting on Instagram. We're currently in no man's land <laughs> and uh, best international calling plant ever. Mm. And then you get to this, um, this little kiosk kind of thing, this like, you know, a corrugated steel a uh, place with a where someone a window that someone would conceivably take a passport through and but there's no one in it and uh we're loading up on clothing because it it got cold when you came down into the valley a little bit and then there are a couple buildings in the distance and it's kind of like i feel like we're entering the country i feel like we should get our passport stamped but there's no one here there's no one anywhere and you're in this valley in the your Keshkum, your Keshkum, something like that. Your Keshkum Pass. Thank you. And uh, way up there, I don't know the altitude, but it isn't low. And um, and so we're loading up on clothing, and then I finally see a sign, and I go to try to translate it using my phone, you know, translator app. And up on the hill behind us, I hear this shout, and a guy's coming down, crossing his arms, and a big X symbol, and uh, he's got a he's got a rifle over his shoulder. And we had joked a little bit uh, in China about some of the, the improvised security guards because we were there during their, without backtracking too much, we were there, went into Beijing during their 70th anniversary mm. party. And there's a lot of extra security guards and it looked like they took 16-year-old kids and threw them in uniforms because mm. they just needed so many. And this guy didn't look like that. This guy, and uh, I'm like, he looks like the kind of guy who could kill somebody. And Holly said, he looks like he has killed somebody. He was a very, very serious as he marches down holding his rifle and telling me no. Anyways, he got closer, he started shouting no photo. I'm like, okay, uh -huh. I wasn't taking photo, but there's no language here. I, I, I can't explain, he's just, he, he wanted to see my phone, he wanted to delete what he thought was a photo. And the fact that there wasn't one there that he could delete bothered him. And finally someone else comes out and asks for passports and then goes back into this, this compound. And I make to follow them 
because I stay with my passports. This is one of my neuroses. Uh, I follow, I'll stay with my passport. I like my passport. I don't want to be in no man's land between Xinjiang, China and Kyrgyzstan without a passport. That seems foolish. So I go to follow and then the man with the assault rifle says, no. <laughs> That's so, pretty clear. So I don't. So I don't. So my rule is always stay with your passport unless a man with an assault rifle tells you not to and then you stay. And uh, so we stayed there. 15 minutes later, they came back and handed us our passports and said no photo and walked away. And then you look around, and China's back over that way, and Kyrgyzstan's over this way, and there's this road and this abandoned trail of, uh, of semi-trucks that presumably are waiting for a customs inspection, but you just don't know. We don't know the story. And, uh, and you follow the road, and you hope that the guy who told you eventually you'll find a taxi is right. And it was three and a half kilometers. Um, so we and our three children. My while... method, <laughs> my, my amazing parenting method, I, I just have to get to my own horn a little bit, was to put on the tunes. When you know you're going to walk forever, you just need a little humor after people are, you know, carrying so we had some big Annie. guns. and Yeah, so we said so we did climb every mountain <laughs> and it's a hard knock life. For us, you know, all sorts of good motivating. Show tunes. It was all show tunes. Oh, Hercules. I can go the distance. Da -da -da. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, if you go to our website, fivebackpacks.family, you can see a video of Holly singing Annie while walking through the Irkashkandam Pass. Um, and so, three and a half kilometers later, you finally get... And we ran across a couple other people, like three other people, um, like, sitting in these semi-trucks. So, they weren't totally abandoned. Um... And they waved, and they were very friendly. And every someone offered to like take a photo for us when we were doing our selfies. And they uh, and some guys were hanging around and heard our music and started dancing a little bit. Like everyone was super friendly and like mm -hmm. welcome to Kyrgyzstan kind of thing. Uh, with no no language other than like uh, state. They kept saying like state, meaning what like what state, what yeah. state are you from? It's like. Uh, um, what I really appreciated that Chris did when we we started taking those first few steps, or even before those first few steps, he said, "Kids, we've done all of our research that we can." We just don't know what this next part is about. There were no answers for us anywhere that we could ask. And so we need you to do your best and understand that we're gonna walk as long as it takes to get to where we need to go. And thanks for your understanding. And they were super. They just kind of put their heads down and walked, carrying all of their worldly possessions. Um, Turned out three and a half kilometers and then we got to a custom station. And they were like expecting us or maybe they just always sit around they're sitting outside chatting, smoking cigarettes, and, and I'm like, do we go this way? And they're like, no, you come inside. And it was the it was a custom stop, because that was immigration. Now this is mm -hmm. customs three and a half kilometers away. And uh, they come in and they look at our bags and stamp our passports, and they're all very friendly and send us on our merry way. And, um, and then they start talking to people on the other side of this barricade, and, uh, and very eager people come up to go swoop in and taxi drive us. They, uh, they had been waiting, because the driver's seat was reclined all the way in their seat, like uh, Holly described them as like fishermen. Like they're sitting there waiting for the big catch. Waiting for the nibble on their hook. Okay. And when they got one, they got a big one, because we had nothing they... else to do. There were 47 miles to the next place where we could sleep. Yeah, there was a town 47 miles away with a bed and breakfast. We were not going to walk that far. Yeah. So. And uh, <laughs> they set a ridiculous price, and then we set half that, and then they came. I think we set all the 90% of their original ridiculous price, and they agreed to accept payment in Chinese yuan because I did not have any Kyrk money at this point, nor a way of getting it. And, um, and then we crawled the five of us into a compact sedan, <laughs> and uh, plus the driver, and then another young Kyrk guy 
uh, piled in too. So it was just the seven of us in a compact sedan <laughs> nice. for the next couple hours. And, uh, and it was beautiful and stunning and uh, friendly. And, and uh, he spoke a little German, which was kind of random and funny. Um, and, uh, and the drover, driver spoke, you know, seven words of English or whatever total. And at the end of the drive, he dashed into his house, said, This was the other, the other young man. Yep, the young man dashed into his house. He came out with an enormous bag of walnuts and apples for us. Oh, nice. Yes. And then, and then <laughs> we cool. And, uh, uh, and then we exchanged our Instagrams and WhatsApps with everybody and went on our merry way. So and there you have it. Resilience in Mount Temple and Kyrgyzstan border crossing. And then everybody we met in Kyrgyzstan was so amazingly friendly and welcoming. Just everybody, our, our hosts at our at our hostel were so friendly, and then just everybody we met. It was a it's a neat place to be. It was a big change from where we'd come from. How did you choose to go to Kyrgyzstan? It's a great question. Well, we were following the the Silk Road a little bit. So in a... my mind, the Silk Road was something really romantic that I wanted to explore. Uh, I had only learned about it up until Kashgar, the last stop in China. Um, but when we bought tickets in Moscow to go out, we realized, well, we can just keep going. I, I knew nothing about these Central Asian countries, zero, you know? And I even looked, as we're, we're teaching our kids on the road, I look for literature that can back up what, where we are, and really easy to find novels written by Chinese authors or about China, China Moscow, you know, or Russia, no problem. The stands, forget it, like there was nothing for me to share with my kids. And up to this point, we've been traveling by train. And with great luck, you know, the Trans-Siberian Railway is one of my favorite experiences ever. And we didn't talk about much about that, but but, but sitting and, and uh, you know, sip, sipping a tea and looking out the window in, in Siberia is uh, just about as good as it gets. Um, and then the fast high-speed electric trains in China are efficient and effective, if not uh, friendly. And, um, uh, or nearly as romantic. But then you get to Kashgar. Kashgar is the end of the line. There, mm-hmm. The mountain passes, there are no train tracks going over those mountain passes into Kyrgyzstan. Uh, there are two passes. One is uh, a little bit higher and seasonally closed for snow sometimes, and this time of year uh, that was a chance. Um, so we went for the, the easier one, which was, so this was the easier one. Um, and we, when we got to Kashgar, we couldn't figure out uh, how we were going to get past. And so when we, we went into this tourist information and this super nice guy who spoke some English, he's, uh, there's a, a bus one day a week that goes to Bishkek through the Northern Pass, and then there was a, a bus one day a week that went to Osh on the other end. So it was like, where do we stay? Do we stay this long? And then the prices and looking at the different options and whether we went to where we wanted to go next. I also would trace that, your, the answer to your question, to a shift in our way of traveling to going to some youth hostels for, for staying the night. We had been staying in apartments, which was really neat to live kind of like a, a local in China. We were right amongst them. In fact, they were all kind of like, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> in our <laughs> enormous apartment building. Like, okay, haven't seen those faces before. Um, to, and we used to stay in some hotels. So kind of Airbnbs and hotels for the most part. But then we got a tip from some friends, you know, try a youth hostel. They, they're really great. And it's true. We met so many travelers and it, it turns out to be this communication network of it's people, all the people coming the opposite direction. Exactly, going mm-hmm. going the opposite direction. Like, so where did you stay the way where I'm going? And where did you stay where I'm going? Do you know if we can get across this pass? You know, what's it like over there? It's this amazing grassroots, you know, old-fashioned way of, of talking to one another and exchanging notes and getting ideas. Yeah. It was very cool. So I think that's pro- what probably gave us the confidence 
to go through and we just talked to stance. some people who had had similar experiences and come in the opposite direction and had good experiences and and it was amazing it, and, you know i said we knew we knew nothing about them but they're they are built for this silk road exploration it it's a well-traveled path it's been beautified um through several iterations um you know russian government did some yeah, the russia came in in the 20s unesco and world heritage sites mm-hmm. have have has done a lot there too and it's gorgeous and extremely safe um this is where we finally said like kids go out and play oh, wow you know there were a bunch of towns where um there weren't any cars that's our, our main worry and and they could just go and wander these these streets and even yeah. like treat themselves so just to dinner in and, wow yeah oh it was very yeah. cool uh, it was just in kyrgyzstan for a little while it's known for its you know hiking and natural beauty and whatnot which we just didn't have the equipment for uh, or the time for and then we we quickly went on to uzbekistan which is kind of a hotbed of some of the silk road uh culture and, and, and uzbekistan's really the one i'm talking about now yeah yeah it was pretty spectacular so talking about food Mm. What 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 in terms of like uh, uh, food or drink? Because I know you picked up an interesting habit in Russia. We'll talk about Uzbekistan. Anything stand out for you in terms of the food there? Absolutely. Um, Plov. They, they eat the same things, morning, noon, and night. <laughs> they eat which it sounds perfect to me. Mutton and rice and milk and like. Carrots and onions, maybe if you're lucky, some potatoes, kind of thing. But the um, big, the big dish was plof, which is yeah. this made in huge batches on the sidewalk. Uh, and I don't know if they're still outside cooking on the sidewalk because um, because that's what they do, or if it's an advertising. But you walk past a restaurant and they're making plof, and then they're like, "Come on in, have a seat." And I'm like, "Yeah, I'll take some." They're like, "No, you go sit down, and I'll bring it to you." But this is where we're cooking it, and they have these big round, you know, uh, metal. Uh, cauldrons making huge batches and they they like layer the the mutton down at the bottom and then they layer on their rice and then they add their um their uh their carrots and the raisins and whatnot and then they layer it on just right and then there's one big batch and so you have it for lunch and you may or may not get some for dinner oh, i sat down at dinner every night asking for plof when sometimes they're like sorry but they always came up with some so I don't know what they did. I think my quest in all these neighbor. countries was to eat anything pumpkin because they'd have pumpkin dumplings and pumpkin soup and pumpkin everything, and it was just so good. But what impressed me was how we were getting the same food everywhere we went because that is the food that was available. That's what grows there. Um, that is what's growing there. That is what's living there. Um, and it tasted great, of course. You know, it was it got boring because we're so used to our variety. Not for me. I just want to say, I just want to eat okay. the same thing every day. <laughs> Holly is the one who needs But as soon as we got back to the city and I could order a salad with spring greens, you know, it's autumn right now, um, no pumpkin to be found on the menu, I thought, gosh, we are so disconnected from where food comes from. Mm-hmm. We can have any food we want it's also anywhere worth- around the planet, grown, grown through, you know, hothouse methods or, or shipped over from somewhere else. And it felt really nice. And I, I'd love to, to manufacture for myself a diet where I'm just eating the things that are meant to be. I don't think manufacture is the word you want to use there. Why not? Oh, because that's the whole point, Cultivate. Right, is that cultivate, cultivate for cultivate. myself. Because that's the whole point. If, <laughs> if, you can order, if you can order any food any time of year, then it's coming from a long way away or it's made in, you know, in uh, strange contrived methods. If you're eating what's locally 
created. You're probably eating the same stuff all year round, um, or maybe not all year round, but for every meal. And then as the seasons progress, you'll have something slightly different. And we we felt wonderful. Like we were, um, we felt physically better. Digestively, I was awesome. Felt yeah. okay, better and healthier eating mutton than than eating kale in America, which seems super ironic. But um, no, I did miss my kale. Sorry. We all missed our, <laughs> we all kale. Missed our kale. We missed our kale. Everybody missed And kale, kale grows year-round, by the way. <laughs> so Uzbekistan, because they're... Uh, Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan. Uh, go back to China. Okay. Because for folks who listened to our first interview, before you sold everything and hit the States, um, you guys are martial art instructors. Mm. Uh, and I know you've been to the Shaolin Temple in the past. Mm. What was your experience this time going oh, to the yeah. temple? This was the first time that we had been by ourselves. You know, I, I had a contact from who I had met from uh, from being there. It was a liaison for foreigners who want to train there, and so we were able to reach out to him on um, and uh, and 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 a short time back to the idea that we're in a hurry and and, and uh, so many places we wanted to go. The first day at the temple, we just explored and hiked. And, oh, uh, that was such a good hiking day. Oh, so every so time good. that I've been in the past, you know, our, our model's always been so similar. Like in the morning, we train for two or three hours, and then we take a two to three hour lunch, and then we train for two or three hours in the evening, and that's that's been our uh, model for every trip that I've I've ever been on. So midday at lunch, we usually grab a quick lunch, and then there's this hike that hugs the edge of the mountains. It's epic and beautiful. It's a, a particular kind of mountain that's just hard to describe with these sheer cliffs. And there's like this temple and you're looking at it. You're like, I want to go to that temple. It's right there. And you're like, that can't be that far. And if you could fly, it really wouldn't be. But you, you, you're you hugging the edge of the cliff with these this trail that's been created. And then you go into this valley and out of this valley and, and into this and valley down, and down. And, and you go up and down and, and you realize that, yeah, it looks like, like if you could fly, it's probably a mile away. But, you know, it's like 10 miles away um, as you actually get there. And uh, I and when never, you say trail, it's... It's like a constructed, it, it's a stone face. It is a stone, yeah, it is so, a series of concrete and stone jutting out from a vertical face that's been man, man made with a railing. The first yeah. time I was there, there was There's no a, railing. a walkway that's been constructed and like put into the stone. Yeah. This it's is, not carved, this it's would be, attached. This would be okay. completely impossible the the without the construction of this, this path that was made. And, uh, and like I said, when I was first there, like 10 or 15 years ago, it was, there was no railing, but there was like a cable attached so you could hold <laughs> on to it, but you were not. Can I imagine outside. that? Well, we didn't have kids with me then. So this was, this was, this was uh, relatively, uh, it was very stable and there were, but there were some spots where I'm like, my kid could fit through that hole. So it was kind of like, guys, pay attention, stay inside a little bit, but it was, for the most part, it was pretty good. But we had always turned back before. It had always been like, all right, training starts at two o'clock. Ah, uh, we got to turn back. And this was the first time that we didn't have anything scheduled in the afternoon, so we just kept going. Now, I should also say, because I, I want to throw Holly under the bus, that, um, that every other time we had taken a cable car for the first section up the steep part and kind of got to this trail. And this time, Holly's like, let's not take the cable car. And we're like, okay. So we hiked about as far as any of us wanted to. Imagine to get being to the... on a stairmaster for a solid two hours. Yeah. So that kind of those first two hours got us of straight up got us to the top of the cable car, which would have taken us fifteen minutes, and no walking. But then we're like, oh, now what should we do? And uh, well, we should keep hiking. And we we went and we went and we went. And then at some point, people start. Or, you know, people are coming back the other way. They're like, hey, the cable car stops at five, so you should turn back now. If you don't hurry back, you're not going to be able to take a cable car back down. Well, we had heard a rumor, and this was sheer rumor at this point, that 
and it, I shouldn't say just rumor, logically, this trail must go somewhere. We were almost <laughs> positive that this was not just a trail to that, uh, to that uh, temple and back again, but rather it continued on to another town in another valley. That was our going operating theory. So we kept hiking well past where we could logically have turned back. Well we past the light of day. And then it got dark, <laughs> and then it got darker, and then... Pitch black. Then it was pitch black. Really steep And we steps. had we had no flashlights. Oh. We had nothing. We didn't have any more... We'd run out of food and water. I had, when Holly wasn't looking, bought Snickers bars, which are, like, so not on our menu normally. But just before, there was someone, like, closing up her stand for the day, and I'm like, I'll take two Snickers bars. Like, you know. Um, and I had it in my pocket. So somewhere after it was dark, I'm like, here, kids, take this. I broke off pieces. I'm like, hand them, like, what is it? And we just put it in your mouth. <laughs> and they, they're eating Snicker bars. So then they liked me even more. They already liked me more than Holly, which I, I need to cultivate those moments when I can because generally they like her better than me. Um, but she's the one who said no to the cable car, and then I gave them Snickers. So this was, I was winning. And, uh, and Oh my then, gosh. <laughs> I'm just saying. And then finally, like, we turned this corner, and, uh, and there's like a guy with a dog in this like hut, and we're thinking during the day he sells trinkets or whatever and he just kind of looks at us like we're crazy and smokes a cigarette and we continue down the the longest staircase that was bizarre. I, I yeah that was a little weird and then we continue down what is the longest single staircase i've ever gone down in my entire life um you know unbroken no landings no turns no twists just straight down for for i don't even know how long oh my gosh and the magic the magic of the universe of our planet there was a taxi waiting for us in the middle of nowhere <laughs> a single gleaming shining beacon oh, of a taxi awesome. in the middle of oh, the dark awesome i mean just unbelievable and then unbelievable. i argued with him about price <laughs> he, looked at me, he looked at me and he like he looked around he's like, <laughs> like what are you talking about like just pay whatever i want or i'll leave you here to die yeah. and uh and so we paid it and he drove us back but you asked about training training with the monks is always amazing so we went training the next day um because we worked out our sword lines. our chinese is <laughs> no matter how hard we work at it is still so limited and and their english is limited too so it's just a lot of learning by physical movement mm. and this is the ultimate you cannot question your instructor you know, we're kind of brought because up with that. Because you don't know that. how. Yeah, you know <laughs> We're brought up with that in the dojo of, you know, don't ask so many questions. Don't interrupt. Your instructor has a plan for you. Just trust and, and go with it. Um, and we, we, we try to create that here. But he, in the United States, like, we're just used to speaking our minds, you know. And we, we ask about everything. We don't. Mm. It's not like China where you stand in your straight rows and you do exactly what you're told and you keep quiet. Um, but that's what you do at the Shaolin Temple. And it's kind of a, it a wonderful, yeah. And so the boys had you their have to class. Just swallow your ego a little bit and do what you're told. Were, were there other women training? Um, so we. Chris and I were together. We, we have a relationship, instructor. and I've been there and, and whatnot. And so we, we got a private instructor for us. Okay. And, um, in, uh, and I think a little bit of deference to our experience level. And then all, the boys were put in with a group of other foreigners. Nice. Yeah. Kind of a hodgepodge of a few different countries, oh, people who've made I, their pilgrimage to the Shaolin Temple. It's cool. It's very cool. Yeah. And so that was a that was a neat experience, but it was very short, but uh, but fulfilling. Uh, the boys got a taste of practicing over and over and over and over again, without any new material. New material or that feedback was, or anything. That was hard. Mm-hmm. There was some frustrated, blinking yep. back tears, kind of like he just indicated that we should practice and then left us for an hour <laughs> okay yeah, yeah. Our, our instructor did the same thing what do you want from me you know mm-hmm. that's 
that's, there's, there's a lesson built into that too. I also have to think it was really inspiring for our boys to see the army of boys that train there in the Shaolin mm-hmm. Valley. You know, the Kiai that they put forth on their moves just echoes in the Technically not the a Kiai since that's a Japanese no. <laughs> Just saying, just saying. Uh, and they move so fast and, and so beautifully. So yeah, that, it was great to be able to share that with them. We, we talked about that before we even had kids. Like, imagine bringing our kids here. So it's cool to do yes. that. Then maybe sometime in life when we have more time, we'll, we'll go back there for a month or three months or whatever and really kind of get to immerse ourselves a little bit uh, specifically in that. But we'll see. Speaking of martial arts, you also had some interesting experiences in Russia around the martial arts. Okay, so my tip for anyone who's traveling is if there's an open door that calls to you, you should walk through it. Uh, I took one afternoon after arriving in Khabarovsk, and I Which want- continues to be one of our favorite towns in the whole world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, just gorgeous. And one open door I walked through was, speak English. It was this big, aside from all the Cyrillic I'd been reading everywhere, there's this big speak English sign. So I wandered in there and made a connection with an, an English-speaking school, you know, or school that's, that's teaching English. I thought, well, this is a great idea, you know. Because I'm an expert. Here's something, <laughs> here's something I can offer. Like, hey, would you guys be interested in just, like, hanging out? You speak enough English that I could ask you cultural questions. I speak native English, which apparently is, like, so cool. They all, we all oh, it's a native speaker. And you're oh, an American really? native speaker. You know, they've learned their British Style. So interesting. Like the guy who owns the school, he he spent two years in Alaska, like that's his and uh, and his English is quite good, but he's still not a native speaker. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so, so this is one of my number one tips when traveling. If you if you would like to make a, a connection, go to a school where you, they speak the language that you speak really well, um, and they and they may be very happy to welcome you. And it's something that our, my children were able to participate in too. I said, is there any chance you have kids who are learning and might like to, you know, my, my kids would love to teach a game to your kids, hmm. for instance, in, in English. And we got together twice with a, with a oh, group of cool. kids. I've been looking for some kind of service that, that we can provide while on the, on the road. And this was a very simple and fun one to do. Plus, we made great friends. So I recommend that. The other door I walked through that afternoon was the door of a dojo. It said dojo, thankfully. Well, in Cyrillic. In First, Cyrillic, you have to learn. I was able to do that. Yeah. There are a lot of, uh, just uh, my Russian language tidbit, there are a lot of cognates. There are a lot of words that are the same in English and Russian, mm-hmm. but then they, they transliterate them into the Cyrillic alphabet. So once you learn, you know, that this symbol makes this sound and this symbol makes this sound, you're like, oh, that says coffee and that says dojo and that says restaurant. We were always looking for a pectopot. Because if you were to take the Cyrillic word for restaurant, which is restaurant, it's the same word, uh, but written in the Cyrillic alphabet. But then if you were to read that using Latin pronunciation, it looks like pectopot. So we always were looking pectopa for... Pectopa is restaurant. Restaurant, red Cyrillic. So once you figure out the Cyrillic alphabet, you can be like, oh, that says dojo. Um, so I walked through the door, you know, just never be afraid of what might be behind those those open doors because wonderful experiences away for you just have to be bold enough to walk through right um and the first i ran into some construction crew i was like oh i guess this isn't going to go anywhere but but they they urged me down the hall and i met an english-speaking lady who said we'd absolutely love you to come to class why not you know um, so we, I brought the kids and they did their kids class and we did an adult class. We did it twice. Well, in fact, we extended our stay because we Wanted enjoyed Cavardo so much. Yeah. Um, and it was terrific. We, we kind of, I learned that I speak a language in martial arts, um, not through words, but through physical movement. It's something that I share with a lot of people across the planet 
with whom I couldn't speak more than three sentences around there, at least I can learn from them. Uh, so I really, I'm excited about doing that more and more. And I did continue to look for places, though it got a little harder once we got into the stands. That was less, yeah, that was less common. And... Um, well, you also mentioned to yoga as a universal yes, language I, of sorts. Yeah, so it's my resolution to be sure to go to two classes per week, be it yoga, be it martial arts. Um, it's fun to experience the different ways that something that I train in yoga or, or martial arts are maybe a little different, you know, in Russia, I, I joked that it was really kind of intense, you know, they weren't very, no incense and no like soft music playing. It was like, okay, now push. <laughs> oh, yes, okay. it's good. Oh. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's but... gotta be hard and hurt. Okay, is this Russian yoga? Yes. <laughs> but if you want to, you know, it's so, um, we all travel for different reasons. And we, we spoke earlier about the idea of a vacationer versus tourist versus traveler. And there's a lot of other, many other monikers a person might uh, might attach to themselves. And we're all different things at different times. Um, but if you aren't careful, it, we tend to, you know, you take the taxi, which, you know, is focused on uh, taking tourist places. And then you go to the museum, and then you go to the hotel, and then you go to the restaurant that, that has the English-speaking menu and whatnot. And um, if you're not careful, you you can end up in this little box that's been pre-made for you that looks like exactly like you want it to uh, look. The Center. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you might, and, and there are certain aspects of that that could be wonderful and you can enjoy, but, but you're missing an opportunity to kind of meet the people there. In, uh, in another environment. And almost by definition, the local dojo or yoga class or English class are locals. And, uh, and so you walk through these doors and then you meet people who, they live there and they're living their life and they're going to their, their karate class or their, their yoga class or their English class. And uh, so it's a neat way to, to get outside of that box a little bit uh, without rather than going to the places that have been laid mm -hmm. out for the tourists. It is hard if you don't speak some common language. And again, that doesn't have to be doesn't have to be by words. Um, you know, yoga is a common language too. <clears throat> so, but one thing we, I did discover, so I'm with, I, I agree with Chris about, it's, it was our goal to invest ourselves into the culture where we, we found and, and not be, um, this wasn't the kind of vacation where we're sipping Mai Tais on the beach, but rather we're, we're there to learn. 203 days, zero Mai Tais. That's right, not a Mai Tai. <laughs> Um, but even on some of those tourist tracks, like in Uzbekistan, for mm -hmm. instance, we really did find ourselves swept up in a wave of, of tourism along this Silk Road. Like I said, it was a very safe way to travel. It was what people are, are doing, like two nights here, two nights here. It's a, it's a well-beaten path. Well, it's a, it's a very horizontally or is an east-west oriented country with a nice train line <laughs> and, a, and a series of very popular stops. And so we'd run into the same people. We'd be like, didn't I see you in Bukhara? It's like, yeah, we were there for two days. Oh, okay. You know, and uh, so you just kind of travel along. But here's the thing. We discovered that even if you are maybe not going to the home of someone in Uzbekistan, if you're on one of these tourist places and you reach out to meet someone also a tourist from another country, now you're having a cultural exchange. And that was, that was wonderful. Yeah. We spent a week or so traveling with a, a, a French woman, a German woman, and a uh, American family, but they had spent the last four years living in Kazakhstan. <laughs> and uh, so they had some, some, some things to share as well. And then on one of the trains, we met uh, some uh, 
Uzbek college students, uh, uh, law students, law yeah. students, and they invited us uh, to show us around. When we got to their home, they were headed all the way to Nukas, uh, which we're like, well, we'll be there in a week, you know, because we're going slowly, and they're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll show you around our home when we get there, and, and um, so there's just people to meet wherever you go. Um, we did some homestays while we were there, which were which are kind of creative experiences, but at the same time, they can also they can still be very gratifying. We met some neat people that way as well. And you guys blogs about your whole journey. www.fivebackpacks.family. Thank you. So if people <laughs> want to learn more about your different adventures, Mongolia, Russia, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan. And then back to Moscow. Back to Moscow. Cool. And also you did some travels here domestically in the States, yeah. which you also blogged about too. With some, I heard some cool pictures. But you guys are uh, heading out of town again shortly. That's right. Where to? Uh, we'll have a, a couple weeks in ta- Taiwan and then on to Australia from there. And we intend to make it to New Zealand. Um, and that's kind of as far as we've planned. We, um, like we I met said, some new Caledonian people on a Siberian train. They were so nice. They're like, you don't know where it is. It's okay. Nobody does. And I'm like, oh, okay, good, because I don't know where it is. <laughs> but New Caledonia, and it's okay that you don't know, is a uh, French island near New Zealand. So I'm hoping to reconnect with them. Oh, that'd be awesome. It's about 200,000 people on the whole island. And uh, so it's this tiny little French island. And uh, so that we they jumped out us because they spoke a little bit of English and French, of course, and a little bit of Russian on uh, the Trans-Siberian Railway. And they were on uh, three friends on a trip. And they invited us to come visit them in New Caledonia. So maybe we'll, we'll make it over there. Nice. And one more time, your blogs who can follow your travels? www.fivebackpacks.family. And we're on Instagram and whatnot. If you search for Five Backpacks Family, we're, we're uh, all over the place. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Michael.